Thanks for joining us for episode six of the Collective Defense podcast titled Twitter COVID Russians. Ah, f- The Collective Defense podcast, where we are defining the next generation of cybersecurity. We are all in this together. All right, back with me today, my Collective Defense podcast co-host, Bill Swearingen. How are you doing today, buddy? Hey, Joel, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for today's podcast. I've got a lot of good news to go over today. Yeah, and if the title alone didn't tell it to you, there's a lot of stuff going on in the cyberspace. So today's going to be mostly focused on news articles, and I'm excited to get your feedback on this. Let's go ahead and jump right in. So This first article is on the Twitter hack. We got to talk about it. You've watched this whole thing unravel in near real time on social media. Talk to me about it. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. I, you know, I I was watching, uh, I'm a big Twitter user. um, And when it started going, I said, off. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be fun. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we started seeing a lot of uh, very high-profile attacks sharing a very obvious Bitcoin scam. They uh, essentially they were using some of very popular. I think you know Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, using those accounts to say something like, "Hey, if you send me you know some Bitcoin, I'll double it. And re- you know, and return you know, return your money." Yeah, yeah, and they were yeah. they were saying, "Hey, I'll return double the amount of Bitcoin you send to my wallet." And I think they made a couple hundred grand. Am I right? Yeah. So the so last I looked, I was they they made just over one hundred twenty thousand U.S. Right. So not not very. I mean, great, good for them. But I think that the amount of investigation that is uh, targeting them probably not going to be worth the hundred k. They could have done a lot better. Well, and you got to think with that amount of power. Okay, I have access to Biden. I think it was Barack Obama, Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey. I, I have access to hundreds of millions of eyeballs. And you you just made a hundred grand. Like you, they messed up. They messed up yeah. big time. Yeah, you know. So the the interesting part of this story to me, Joel, is is not so much what happened and who did it and the background. I mean, Krebs is doing some re- incredible reporting there. I think he's actually named uh, the people involved. But but really, the the interesting part of this story to me is the Twitter administrative interface, and, and we need to as a security industry. We need to be talking about that. I think that is the the lead on the story that is getting missed. So jump into that, jump into that more for me though. Like, so the administrative interface, okay, there's a God mode application that customer service is using for Twitter. Talk to me about the accesses this tool had. Yeah, there were some screenshots posted as as the investigation was unfolding of the Twitter backend. But essentially, what it allowed you to do was it it allowed any you know any customer support or someone with access to that administrative panel to do things such as uh, reset the the email address, reset the password, potentially even see some of the DMs and and other information in in the accounts. Um, and and the part that really stuck out for me is if you have have done the right things on your account and you have you have a strong password, you've enabled two-factor authentication, you, you know, you've done all these things to lock down your account, 
but yet there's still a back-end system that can provide somebody or, or anybody access to, to this data. What really, really stands out to me is that we probably have this same situation in, in a lot of other environments that we're currently using. Now, you know, this, this is just me speculating. I, I don't know this to be fact, but I have to, to believe that this type of access exists in services like LinkedIn, Facebook, other services that have some sort of instant messaging or, you know, DM, th that kind of capability that's not end-to-end -end encrypted. I, I think that people really need to consider the kind of conversations that they're having over these these platforms. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to take it a step further. I remember reading an article not that long ago that Amazon Alexa employees were listening in to the stuff being recorded on these smart speakers. So not only Twitter employees, you know, you have these smart speakers in your phone that can listen in and employees have access to all of that data, but you're right. You know, the stuff you're sending on Facebook in those direct messages, probably even stuff that's supposed to be completely gone on Snapchat, somebody's probably got access to it. I know recently, just this week, there was a release on a bunch of VPN companies that, you know, their service level agreement said, we don't log anything. Well, guess what? millions and millions of credentials and logs were leaked from those VPNs. So just another example of these companies saying that your account's secure, saying that your privacy is important to us. But is that the case? Right. You know, absolutely. And when, when I saw that that VPN thing this week, I was just laughing. I mean, because we've all been kind of saying this for, for years, right? Hey, you know, those free VPNs, what what do you think they're selling, buddy? You know, <laughs> uh, but, but kind of bring it back to the, the Twitter thing. You know, if anybody hasn't been paying close attention to this, to me, th this was a clear case of insider threat. This was a, an employee that was coerced to provide access to a group. They were selling access to accounts, right? So they, what they do is they, they would say, hey, for 1500 bucks in Bitcoin, I can change the email address for, for this OG account, sharing it out that way. And essentially what happened was, the person that had access to that decided that the onesie twosie selling of these accounts wasn't wasn't funny enough and they decided just to go on a rampage this was a clear insider threat yeah and you know we've seen things like the, there's a lot on the news right now that some of these people involved may have had connections to sim swapping uh attacks but you know, this isn't the first time we've seen that insider threat, even with Twitter. There was a SIM swapping attack. This was not a SIM swapping attack. But in the past, there was actually a SIM swapping attack that was thought to be behind the hijacking of the Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey's Twitter last year. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting about, you know, SIM swapping is it works very similar to what they did here with, with Twitter, right? So what they do is they convince a person that is just trying to get their job done, you know, at, at the... At the cellular carrier, they convince them that they are owner of that account and they just needed to swap SIM. No, but, but truly what this was, it was a malicious insider selling PII and access to God mode level applications from the customer support department. And if we think this is the only application of its kind within social media organizations, we're kidding ourselves. Yeah, be, be considerate of what you're sharing um, on, on any platform. Yep, somebody else may have eyes on it. So this leads us into our next article. This is in regards to Stuxnet 2.0, where Iran hints at nuclear site explosion could be from a cyber attack. Now, this is interesting because what I mean by Stuxnet 2.0 is that this is a cyber attack that can hit an air-gapped network. Bill, do you remember how the original Stuxnet was implemented? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the the way I understood it, it was uh, it was delivered via USB drive, right? So they uh, they put Stuxnet on a USB drive and kind of sprinkle it around the area and hoping that someone would would plug that into the the uh, the air gap network. But Stuxnet one, you know, the, of course you you recall Joel, it got it got set loose and it, and it made its way out onto the internet. And um, researchers uh, across the world were starting to receive and research and, and analyze Stuxnet. It was it didn't stay self-contained to that air gap network. Yeah, and I'm gonna say whoever, if this was a cyber attack, this is just speculation at this point in time. But if you know Stuxnet was created by the U.S. government, according to sources, but this is going to be much more targeted. We call it Stuxnet 2.0, but I don't think, I think we, if this was from the U.S. or from another Five Eyes member, they've learned their lesson. This isn't something that's going to get out of control on the internet. It was targeted. It could have been implemented by via USB or some other means to get a hook into the network. But, you know, at this point, I think we can be certain that it's not going to spread like the original Stuxnet. USA, USA. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Cool. Well, let's jump off uh, away from the speculation and let's get over to the U.S. indictments that were just released. The assistant attorney general, John Demmer, said China has now taken its place alongside Russia, Iran and North Korea in that shameful club of nations that provide a safe haven for cyber criminals in exchange for those criminals being on call to work for the benefits of the state. This is pretty wild because... That means this week's indictments are the first ever that the U.S. has issued where the defendants are going to be charged with criminal hacking, both for their own gain and on behalf of their government. Yeah. So I don't know if you saw the papers, Joel, but I read through them and it looked like that they were they're charging two two people specifically, uh, Lee and Dong. Um, and the indictment papers are fantastic. They go in very great detail about what, what these two were doing. It showed that they were gaining initial access to networks by probing for and exploiting vulnerabilities that, that we've all seen before. Insecure web, uh, web servers, web apps, collaboration suites, and also just kind of looking for default uh, configurations, those kind of things. What really, really stood out to me here these two have been involved in nation state cyber attacks uh, for a long time and targeting a lot of different uh, a lot of different areas, whether we be talking about intellectual property or state secrets or intelligence. These two have been at it for a while. Yeah. Now, I want to step back from just this indictment. So we said it was China. We have two people who are disclosing new vulnerabilities at these targeted organizations. But I want to step back because... The UK version of the US cert said that they came out and they actually implicated Russia for a lot of this hacking activity, but now the US is indicting these Chinese actors. So is this an instance of mixed identity or do you think both of these nation states are to blame? Oh, I absolutely believe that both are to blame, Joel. That's a good question, but you have to imagine that given the state of the world in that we're in right now, just with the COVID cases and the rate that the U.S. is trying to develop a vaccine is just truly unprecedented. The nation that discovers the vaccine first is going to win. So how can all, you know, I, you have to imagine that that all countries are are leveraging every capability they have, whether that be researchers, universities, or potentially offensive cyber capabilities to get more information to, to get that vaccine. That's excellent. And I want to jump into what these Chinese actors were using, but it was interesting. There was an article from the UK 
Oh, don't quote me, last year or this year, and they said that basically any university of a number of universities they probed could basically be hacked within two hours. Do you believe it? Well, I don't know. I mean, so my, my initial visceral reaction is, yeah, I, I'm not surprised. Universities have a lot of difficulties with security, mainly because uh, you, you just imagine that population is, is ever-changing. You've got, you've got tenured professors that need access, uh, need immediate access to huge data sets. It's got to be very difficult to secure. The every or all is, is definitely something that I'm sure that there are some that are better than others. I agree. So let's jump into what these Chinese actors were doing. So it looks like for initial access, they were dropping difficult to discover web shells uh, with innocuous sounding names, right? So they were dropping these on those compromised networks. They were issuing malicious commands remotely. It looks like the web shell the pair has used frequently is the China Chopper. That's the official name of the tool or unofficial name of the tool. It's also commonly used by other Chinese-based hackers to remotely control multiple systems at the same time on that compromised network. Yeah, as, as I was looking through here, you know, they definitely knew what they were doing. I, I don't want the next sentence to come off that they that these two weren't skilled uh, attackers. But as I was reading through the indictment papers, you know, the tools that they were using were, were used to seeing. As defenders, we're used to seeing web shells being deployed in compromised web applications, right? Mm. If we were truly looking for the same TTPs, the same type of malware, the same type of behaviors that, that we would expect, we would have caught that. But one thing I, you know, I want to kind of go back to something earlier that you said, you know, especially when you start talking about other nation states, the NCSC, the, the you know, the, the UK US CERT has also stated that, that Russia is doing this. And what I found just incredibly interesting where the TTPs were very, very similar between mm. the, the Chinese attackers and the Russians. These attackers right now, they've changed, right? They're not having to go slow and low right now. They're they are scanning that they are using vulnerability assessment. They are scanning for vulnerable web applications at remote desktop and VPN services, right? 2020 just keeps on giving, right? We keep, we've seen, seen vulns in Citrix. We've seen vulns in multiple VPN services, you know, whether that be Pulse or 40 OS or Palo Alto had one. Uh, you know, and just it just keeps going and going. These attackers are are after known vulnerabilities. Um, they're exploiting them and going after that intellectual property. Yeah, and you're right. Once again, we come back to the majority of U.S. employees are working at home. And yeah, absolutely yes, right. They're using VPNs part of the time, but the other part of the time, it's that Verizon router defending them. Not sure if you have much faith in those. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> oh <Right>. boy. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that, let's jump into the next one. So this is, you know, the other side of the coin is Trump just signed an executive order that gives the CIA more powers to launch offensive cyber attacks. So it looks like the CIA is going to go side by side with the NSA and other bureaus to hack back against potentially Russia and China. So do you think these indictments are going to begin going both ways? You know, Joel, as I read through this article, it really does make me think that that we're going to get there. So the U.S. traditionally has been very, very forward leaning with our indictments of foreign nationals that are committing cyber espionage uh, on us and other Five Eyes nations. With this executive order coming from Trump, I, you know, it, it's definitely a public uh, show of force, right? And I and I would not be surprised if 
uh, some sometime down the line, a year from now, that China issues indictments against some of our military operators. I, Oof, I, it could. It's going to be interesting. Be what an interesting time. Yeah, twenty twenty. Who knows if we'll see it this year or next? But uh, things are getting interesting now. It wasn't just the U.S. Last year, the U.K. stated they're going to begin hacking back as well. What other countries do you think are performing these hackback activities? Yeah, well, I mean, so we obviously have, you know, we, we've already talked about Stuxnet. So, I mean, that really uh, implicates Israel is, has been doing this probably for some time. I think everybody knows that Israel is a, it has a hacking back stance. I'd probably put, you know, most of most of the Five Eyes countries, right? So, uh, you know, maybe I, I'm not I'm not sure. You know, I this is not not my area of expertise, so I don't really want to I don't want to implicate anybody that's not doing anything. But you know, I, I would say that the the main ones are probably going to be Israel, the UK, and, and obviously USA, yeah. <laughs> USA. Yeah, and so interesting that we're. It looks like you know, let the hacking wars begin. I guess, but what happened? I want to say it was last year. Was Hamas was you know, launching cyber attacks against Israel. And Israel reached out with a couple fighter jets and dropped a couple bombs where those hackers were operating out of. So I think this is something that could escalate quickly. And let's hope it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, let's let's keep the cyber war in cyber. Yep, I agree. So let's jump into some cyber techniques that are back after summer vacation. Looks like Emotet is back and that these botnets have now started using additional hash busting techniques to ensure that the malware's file hash on each infected system is not the same. Moreover, it, the Emotech code is now utilizing a state machine to obfuscate control flow. What does that mean? Okay, it means that these branches are nested loops and this allows code blocks to be placed in arbitrary order with flow controlled by a randomized state value. Uh, and trust me, what I just said, I don't expect you to, to quite pull out of a podcast, but what it means is that this code is going to mutate. Bill, this is not the last time we're going to see this. Can you talk to me through the differences in, okay, they are now hash busting or signature busting versus behaviors when it comes to evolving and polymorphic malware like this? Absolutely, Joel. Uh, so what an interesting topic. I think that we could probably do a whole po podcast just on this. So, so, you know, so the, the way that I see this is, is that when you take a look at the way that organizations are sharing threat intel right now, that it's a lot of atomic indicators. So those would be specific IP addresses, specific domains, and specific file hashes, right? Now, what they've achieved here is making that file hash different every single time that uh, executable is dropped. That's not new, right? We, we've seen this before. You, you know, you just mentioned, you know, the polymorphism. That's exactly was the purpose of doing that. But what this does is this really makes it very difficult for traditional signature-based antivirus or, you know, any other protections to, to detect malware, right? The only way that you're going to be able to detect this threat is behavioral. Yeah, you're right. And so I think that, you know, comes back to the purpose of this podcast was that, a, we got to start working together better. If cyber actors are working together, if they're able to implement malware that has polymorphic capabilities, organizations have to have behavioral detections as well. And that's why we're here. We're working with organizations hand in hand to detect malware such as this, that most organizations, yeah, they have great antivirus software. You know, I'm, some of these software capabilities have come a long ways and they even do some behavioral analysis on the end point 
But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing this malware obfuscate itself, bypass security controls, and create those behaviors on the wire. Uh, and that's where Iron Defense and Iron Dome come into play to help defend these organizations, detect those behaviors, and allow organizations to work together as well. All right, that is our news for the day. Bill, give me some closing thoughts. You know, on this episode, Twitter, COVID, Russians, off. Oh, and with that we're going to close up episode six of the collective defense podcast bill thanks so much for being here i had a great time joel thanks man